0: Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me from, from his home in Utah, or Utah, I believe via Zoom, is my friend, Daryl Austin. Welcome to the podcast, Daryl.
1: Thank you so much, Richard. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, Daryl is, um, I'll read a bio from one of the articles I've read. Daryl Austin is a health and history journalist based in Utah. His work has appeared in the National Geographic, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Live Science, and Psychology Today. I became aware of Daryl on an article he wrote as an opinion piece for the Deseret News that we may get to in this podcast. But listeners, as I've been reading Daryl's work and better understanding his his thoughts, these are wonderful um, articles that Daryl is sharing nationally that help us bring together Come Together is the same human family, um, topics like racism, topics about helping us be more inclusive to LGBTQ people, um, a myriad of different articles that Daryl has written. And so I, we just decided to have Daryl on the podcast and share some of the things that are important to him. The goal of this podcast, like all of podcasts, is just someone to share their story, their insights to help us bring this together and bring more understanding is that okay for an introduction?
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Richard. I appreciate that.
0: Tell us a little bit about, if I got Orem right, tell us where you live and your status in life, if you have kids, if you're married and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I am from Orem. I actually live out in Eagle Mountain now, Um, but I've lived in Utah most of my life. I Left the state uh, to serve a, a mission um, for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints out in Puerto Rico, where I learned kind of a mixed Spanish. <laughs> I, I'm I'm I was definitely fluent at the time, but it's you know it's more cafe Rio Spanish now. Um, how I'm ordering uh, uh, my Mexican food, but um, I learned Spanish out there. I. Uh, I sold alarm systems a few times and lived out in California for a period and lived out in New York for a period and lived out in Colorado. Um, And I was actually in California when I was trying to uh, get to know a girl that I had known in real life, but only seemed to communicate with anybody on MySpace. And I was teased by her one day that I didn't have any MySpace friends. And I only created the account so that we could have a communication, you know, when we weren't seeing each other in the evenings. And so I just started going around and randomly requesting a bunch of different people on MySpace to be my friends. And one of those people happened to be the woman that I eventually married. Um, And I didn't know her from Adam and she lived in Southern Utah. And like I said, I was in California at the time and we ended up meeting up and got married three years later. And now we have four little kids. And um, the, my oldest is 10. I've got uh, three daughters and a son. And then I've got a girl, another daughter who just turned eight last week and is getting baptized in the in my faith this Saturday, um, which is exciting for me. It makes me emotional just even saying that. And I have a five-year-old daughter um, and then a little two-year-old son. And we're complete now. My wife and I wanted four kids, and now we've got them and couldn't be happier, nor feel more blessed.
0: That is great. Um, What a great time of life. Share with our listeners, I don't know what high school you graduated from, but if we went back to, and I met you on your graduation day from high school, would you have talked to, would you have told me I want to become a nationally known writer?
1: I wouldn't have. Um,
0: Tell us then how this happened.
1: Yeah, a little bit by chance. I I um, I always uh, I, I I've always called myself a late bloomer. I I've always kind of regretted that I didn't recognize a calling in myself earlier in life. Um, kind of felt a little bit frivolous in my high school experience, just kind of a social experience, and I did fine in school, but nothing great. And um, came out of school and went. I was oldest in my class and so went almost immediately on my mission and did a lot of growing up there like a lot of missionaries do and then came home and all I knew is that I I wanted to work for myself that was something that was really important to me. I didn't care so much about how much money I made but that my time felt like my own and so I I started a couple of different companies and one of them floundered and one of them did all right and I sold it and then I went on to another company where I did some graphic design and some social media management. And that did that did well for a number of years. Um, and I still do some of that a little bit on the side. Um, but about four years ago, I started um, uh, deciding that I wanted to try to contribute a little bit more on a national stage. I remember thinking, not that I don't feel like the graphic design work doesn't contribute because I do, but I started feeling like I, I wanted to do something that um, made a little bit more of a difference um, to people that I felt like maybe didn't have voices. Not necessarily just, you know, not necessarily um, those who are marginalized, but but about a wide range of topics. I have some unique, um, I have some unique uh, lifestyle choices and some unique perspectives on things, and I feel like even if if I read an article that somebody else has written even if it wasn't a very popular article or it wasn't widely read, if they've they've written it in a way that speaks to my soul, it's always been um, an elevating experience. And so I thought I wanted to be that voice for for people who maybe had um, different ideas or different things that were similar to my own, but maybe would feel validated or perhaps even challenged in some of their thoughts. And so I just decided to submit something um to uh, a local publication called lds living um uh, you know that's faith-based publication and they accepted it and i was all of a sudden felt validated and like maybe um you know it could have an impact and i ended up writing for them a number of times and then i expanded a little bit out onto uh desert news and then to a couple of net of of smaller national publications and it kind of snowballed from there, and soon I, I, I decided, decided my voice was really in reported writing. Um, I wasn't going to spend as much time. I still do occasionally, and the article you referred to at the beginning from the Desert News is one such example, but I wasn't going to spend as much time using my own voice as I was going to be finding other people and telling their stories, similar, I suppose, to what you do with your podcast. Um, and so I don't necessarily have a voice, um, in, in the articles I'm interviewing experts and, and sometimes celebrities and people who, um, who have a story that they're, you know, that they're or a message that they're hoping people pick up on. And so I do a lot of reported stories now, but like you said, I've done it for, um, you know, uh, I've written for CNN and I write pretty regularly for newsweek and, uh, the guardian and New York times and business insider and Fox and. NBC news. i mean in a lot of different outlets and I, it's just all been about like anything else in life networking and building relationships with certain editors and kind of being plugged into the stories that might matter to readers and, and, you know, kind of going out in that front. I do that a bit more than I ought to, but I enjoy the, I enjoy the process.
0: I assume you're in your thirties.
1: Yep. Uh, uh-huh, 38.
0: That's roughly not even 20 years from high school. What, what would you tell, because you're doing something very different than you thought you'd be doing on high school graduation when you looked at your future. And and I'm sure when you started this, there was a lot of like, you know, how do I do this? And am I, could I really do this? And this is, you know, a national footprint and a national voice I'm trying to build. And, and it's you kind of talking to, younger people that are trying to do something kind of brave, you know, what would you say to your younger self when you were doubting your ability to do this? This is you talking to just other people that are maybe trying to follow their heart on unique career paths that maybe there's not a lot of role models, a lot of people that have gone down that road in their family or their friend group. What would you say to young people that are kind of feeling a desire to do something that really resonates with them, but it just seems like a reach.
1: Um, first thing I'd say is never disqualify yourself. Don't don't ever diminish your own light. Um, we all have a tendency to do that. I tremendously. So my wife is constantly telling me you, you know, you, you matter what you say or do can matter because I'm self critical, as I think so many of us are. And so recognize that you have a voice that other people that will resonate with some people and of course there'll be a flip side to that where some people will not appreciate your voice and will not like your voice and i think you have to come to terms with that and accept that right away and decide i don't mind about the people who who i'm not for i i want to reach the people i am for um and so when you when you accept that i think it makes it easier to move forward um, with courage that somewhere someone is going to um, be impacted or feel validated or feel heard or understood. I guess those are just different forms of validation by something you say or do. And I think that um, you, you you need to recognize that you have an ability to do that. And you don't always have to be called, you know, uh, you don't always have to be asked. I think that's a tendency in all of us, where we want direction. We 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 hope a boss, a parent, a friend will say, "Hey, so and so, get out there and do this or that." But I think we have to be championing our own cause and are are using you know recognizing the power of our own voices and going out there and doing it. I also think. And this is something I learned early on because, like I said, I had a I had a background once upon a time in sales. You have to be comfortable with rejection. You've got to be okay um, with being rejected uh, or feeling feeling like you're not like I, I guess that kind of goes in with uh, you know not being for everyone.
0: It's a great answer. Were the seeds of being a writer present when you were a high school student? Were you taking writing classes? Were you doing any writing? And this is sort of like, I think of one of the responsibilities as a parents is to some, sometimes be able to see seeds um, and career paths in their kids that may not be revel, readily, readily evident early on and sort of create enough environments that these skills that kids have can, that they can learn about and use. So I'm just kind of, I still back, so what was it like, were, were these seeds there when you were a high school student?
1: I think if if I had been paying attention to them well enough, yes, I would have recognized that English, for instance, was always my favorite class. Um, vocabulary and grammar and and you know understanding the way sentences were structured was difficult for me. Um, I, that wasn't you know the technicality of writing wasn't as exciting for me, but I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed language. I did enjoy reading, um, and and specifically to this. Space. I feel like the the most important thing you can do if you were interested in writing is to start reading a lot. And I do. I read a tremendous amount. Um, and so I, you know, you, you you just. I I actually kind of felt like I was such. Um, I was taking in so much information that I needed to start outputting something. Um, I just it, there was there was a lot of different things that I was learning about, and 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 I and I have no problem saying that sometimes the stories that I write. Are, I mean, they're, they're all stories I write on some level are inspired somewhere else, right? Um, I I read a book or I I hear a historical account and I think, how could I have never heard this before? And so I start digging and wanting to learn more and, and then bring it out. But back to your question, I don't feel like they the seeds were as evident as as or 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 I discovered or somebody else discovered in me as much as like I said, I wish they would have. Um had I known back then what I know now, I could have. I could have picked a completely different path from the get-go and be further ahead than where I am. But at the same time, I'm a big believer that everything kind of works out the way it should in the end. And um, I'm only 38 now. I said I was going to be 40. I'm going to say I'm going to be 39 in next month, but um, you know, I've still got a lot of time in front of me and, and I don't know if that I'm supposed to be on this path forever, but as long as um i feel called to do it and feel like it's making an impact i'll continue to to try
0: i love that and this is a very unique story just before we even get to your content and you and me probably talk with a lot of young people and sometimes i talk about the swimming pools you kind of get thrown in the swimming pool at the end of high school or in college and there's a lot of fog and the the sides of the swimming pool represent a stable career and I've always felt a a general recommendation or encouragement to people to just start kind of moving in the direction that feels right to you. And you may... Absolutely. And there still may be a lot of fog. Some people have just complete clarity in the middle of the pool. There's no fog. They see the edge they're supposed to go to, and they just from age two know they're going to be an orthopedic surgeon. But for 99% of the rest of us, you know, coming out of high school, we just have a feeling and I think that the principle of the swimming pool is just you start swimming in a direction and you may change a little bit and you may move a little bit. But the fact you're moving gets you to the side, which represents um, safety, uh, which represents a career like you're having. And often as parents, you know, I, the, old, the more I parent, the less prescriptive I get and the more principle based I get. And just because I recognize Heavenly Father's plan for my kids may be beyond my ability to see their skills right now. So you want to just lay down a set of principles that help them and and be exposed to enough experiences that maybe some of these gifts, these talents, that there's nothing that's happened in their life to really bring them to the surface through high school or even college, that they're there, are put in situations. That's what you pray maybe as a parent, that you put your kids in situations where they'll learn some talents that they have that you've never been able to see or they've never been able to see. So what you're doing is just unique and I think there's a story in there for all of us. Um, talk about any, is there a favorite um, article that, you know, that you are the feel the best about or that represents just the pinnacle of your work? Or is there an article that represents a key issue for you? Just go wherever you want to go on this, Daryl.
1: I mean, honestly, if I can tell a story, if I can tell somebody else's story and feel like I did it well, I, 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 I did them, I, I um, gave them the justice, the recognition um, that they deserved, that's super rewarding. In fact, I'd probably say that um, one of the pieces I've spent most time on was actually just published on this past Sunday. Um, it was in, published in the Washington Post, and it was about... Um, a, a kind of a, a unique angle on the story of the sinking of the U.S. of a uh, USS Indianapolis back in 1945, and there was a, a, a lieutenant commander in from Japan of a, of a submarine that sank this ship, that ended up killing um, nearly 900 servicemen, U.S. sailors, and um, the 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 captain of that ship was sort of scapegoated after they had been rescued. And this lieutenant commander who would sink that ship ended up coming to their, um, his defense and and ended up leading the, uh, making a, making a substantial contribution to his exoneration uh, more than 50 years later, um, because he was convicted of hazarding his ship. And it was all kind of ridiculous how he was convicted. But telling that lieutenant commander's story um, and his contribution that I hadn't seen told in And then, you know, it's on on a national platform like the Washington Post or in an article form before was is rewarding, you know, that kind of a thing is so historical stories are always going to be very important to me because I I think history teaches. You know, is our voice for today and and uh, that if we pay attention to history, I mean it's very few things are really happening all over again, they are in different ways but most of the time they're they're the same sorts of lessons that we're relearning over and over again. So the more we can pay attention to what's already occurred in the past and, and the way people overcame certain obstacles or challenges in their lives, I think the more we can apply those same lessons to us today. And so those types of stories matter to me. Um, working for certain publications is a real treat for me. I recognize really good writing, almost always far superior to my own writing in certain publications. And so- even when I may not see eye to eye with a publication's ideological views or um, bias, um, I recognize outstanding writing. And so it is such a thrill to be published by certain places that I've, I've been looking up to their writers for a long time. And they aren't people who mince words. I can't tell you, Richard, how many times I've I felt almost laughed out of the room by editors who have just we aren't even a little bit interested in this, and your voice isn't the way you've worded this isn't even um in the ball field of what we're looking for. And lots of humbling experiences. but again the 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 willingness to just trudge forward and just keep submitting, keep writing, keep, you know, keep working. and and then when it is when when you all of a sudden get, the smallest inkling of a compliment of, you know, this is great and we'd like to use it. And not only that, we'll pay you for it. It's so rewarding because all of a sudden you feel validated from a place that you respect. And so that part of it has always been um, thrilling for me as well.
0: Um, In an article like the Washington Post that ran, and we're recording this in June, listeners, and we'll link to that article if you want to look it up in the podcast description Did you, is that something you proactively um, got connected with that story? Or is that something the post or another um, group asked you to explore and and bring an article to them?
1: Well, back to my original um, uh, sort of advice about just going and doing very, very, these editors have editors at any publication are are the busiest people there. they have got so many different stories and so many different projects, and oversee their own team of reporters. Um, so t- for them to consider, you know, working with an outside, you know, a freelancer or an independent journalist like myself um, is is something that they would only do if you bring them something really exciting. And so you're not. I've gotten a few stories that have been assigned to me, just you know, as I built relationships with editors. Editors but almost always it's me proactively finding a story and taking it to them. And um, in this particular case, my, my, my uh, bread and butter, as far as my personal interest is concerned, is biographies. I read a lot of historical biographies um, and uh, memoirs, you know, from people that are is still living even autobiographies I love as well but I read a lot of biographies and I also read the occasional uh, narrative of an historical account and I'd come across a book called In Harm's Way written by Doug Stanton and uh, i just blew me away it was all about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and he did talk about Hashimoto this um, Japanese command submarine commander but that wasn't the emphasis of his story his story was the story of their survival and the five harrowing days they spent at sea, these sailors who had been sunk. And, um, I, I saw sort of another story within that story about Hashimoto. And so I actually reached out to Doug, um, and he's written, he's written some really important stories. In fact, he's, a lot of his stories are based, uh, books are based on them. Um, like, uh, the movie in heart, uh, the movie, um, 12 Strong with Chris Hemsworth is based on a book he wrote. And uh, there was actually a story, a movie about the USS Indianapolis with Nicolas Cage starring in it. You know, he's he has this pretty amazing platform, but um, to be able to reach out and interview him for this story was something that was thrilled thrill for me. And then I ended up interviewing a, a, a two women that had co-written another book about the Indianapolis um, for this story as well. And their voices, I mean, they had dedicated probably 20 or so years of their lives to really telling their their part of that story accurately. And so to be able to talk to these people that know so much more about a story than I do, but that interests me so personally, and it's so exciting to me, was really thrilling. And then, you know, of course, it just falls on me then to try to um, interpret all the things that they, all the quotes they give me and all of the things they tell me to try to do Hashimoto justice in this one particular, you know, part of that much broader story.
0: That's cool. And just for our listeners, the way just so I understand this, because if you step back and think what you're writing about, you're writing about a Japanese submarine commander who destroyed this ship, and I think you said 900 lives were lost. That came to the defense of the commander of this ship 50 years later, and helped exonerate him, if that's the right word, or help bring more understanding as he may be unjustly um, characterized in this incident. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And again, the parallels for today are, are incredible because, I mean, here we have two countries at war. Here we have two peoples who at the time could not have hated each other more, the American and the Japanese, including some terrible things that, you know, some, some of it justified, some of it not, but some propaganda that was occurring during the war. Of course, that wasn't a time period that I was alive during, but I've studied it out quite a bit. And, and there was a lot of hatred um, between these two groups. And then within that, um, within that already challenging circumstance, you've got this additional level of hatred where, you know you've got 1,200 men who are seemingly just you know fine. They're just uh, the war is about to end. It's only 34 days actually, Richard, before the end of World War II. And all of a sudden, this man who's just doing his job finds them um, one night and sinks them. And they um, 300 of them went down. It was about a 1,200 man crew, and 300 of them went down that night. Two of his six torpedoes, or or was it five torpedoes? But anyway, two of the torpedoes that Um, Hashimoto fired at them brought them down and those 900 that were in the water um, ended up just facing horrendous and I don't make the article very much about this it's very briefly mentioned actually in only one paragraph but they end up facing this horrendous um, four days until they're finally spotted and basically five days until they're rescued Um, and they have every reason to hate Hashimoto even though you know America won the war and Hashimoto then returned home. And even though he just done this great thing for his country at war, he finds himself disgraced because their country lost. And then all of a sudden America dropped a bomb just two days later. And then another one a few days after that, that killed so many Japanese. And so all of these people have every reason to possibly, that they possibly could have to hate each other. And for them to find some common ground in that Hashimoto and the sailors who survived there ended up being 316 total of the 1200 crew that were that were taken back to America, that were saved and that's it and to have this Japanese commander who sank that ship and these 316 survivors all feel like the U.S. Navy had unjustly um court-martialed their captain this United States captain and and to find common ground on that play in that way, and to work for more than fifty years to see him exonerated and to have that court martial lifted by wow. a decision from the United States Congress, was so moving to me. And again, the the lesson seems evident that we can do that. The thing we feel so divided sometimes um, from people on the other side of the aisle. And sometimes, if you really like, it's kind of like the thing you do as a parent, where you're like, "Why are you fighting in the first place?" You know, with your child, and and it's almost comical sometimes to hear their answers. Well, she said that, and he did that, you know, kind of a thing. And and I, I, I of course, I'm not minimizing the pain that, uh, polit- you know, political fallout that either side have had have felt over the years. But but if people like that can come together, doesn't it seem? like we can get over some of our differences too um that's the kind of that's sort of what I I saw it as a as a as a story of forgiveness is the angle that I sort of honed in on and that these authors that had studied it so much more than me helped me identify it through our interviews and and that's was really inspiring to me
0: you know I think of our heavenly parents and You know, as a parent, I sure love it when my kids get along and and it's a little harder to get along sometimes in their differences. But that's kind of almost what makes me happier is recognizing there's to be differences among us. And that's part of our mortal journey, but to be able to find common ground. And obviously during a war, it's pretty hard to do that. But the reconciliation and the healing and the forgiveness and I mean, from those nights, you know, those sailors were fighting for their lives after the submarine hit their boat to coming together to have a common goal to have this court martial lifted. It's pretty, pretty moving. And and the principles there and the spirit you feel listeners, as you think about that and what we can do in our own lives to lift court marshals of people that we've put on unjustly or that, you know, need to move on from difficult experiences and, um, the wedge we sometimes keep with people that allow them to have that figurative court-martial lifted from them, that it's time to move on. And um, there's been some error, but there's been some time that that's passed and it's time to reconcile. And sometimes we keep those court-martials on ourselves, so to speak, and we don't let ourselves heal and move on because of things we've done in the past. And um, But that's where we're healed is things stories like that. Um, I, I about, agree. There's a couple articles just sitting out, listeners, in front of my desk. There's one called, I'll read three, and you can decide which one you want to talk about. There's one in the Atlantic called, What You're Saying When You Give Someone the Silent Treatment. There's one you wrote in the Deseret News, in an opinion piece, Disney's Wokeness Beats Wickedness. And there's one that you wrote, of George Floyd's death as the, has to be the tipping point. White. white people like me must fight racism. Now, we could have our listeners vote, but they can't, so you'll just have to go with this.
1: <laughs> okay, are you, able, are you able to hear me for just a second? The audio dropped back out. Are you able to hear all right?
0: Yeah, I can hear you.
1: Okay, all right, good. Um, I am great talking about any of the above. I, I put a lot of time into all of the articles that I write, and so there's a little part of each one of them that becomes a piece of me, um, and I especially... Let's go to the with the desert news one because especially in that case, it's something that is not a reported story um, as sort of the silent treatment piece would be and it's and 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 it really goes hand in hand, I guess with that NBC news article you just talked about about George Floyd's death being a tipping point because both articles at their heart, I think are about um, people like me, a white man who grew up not wanting for too much, um, privileged is what I'd call it, who need to close our mouths and and listen to people who have different experiences. And so whether that's somebody in the LGBTQ space, whether that's somebody of a person of color who um, has felt Feelings that I can't even begin to relate to personally. I can read other, you know, that that's that's my. I feel like that's. I mean, one that's my job as a journalist, right? To to just listen and and pay attention to what other people are saying. But much more importantly, that's my job as a human being to try to find a way to not just find common ground, but to celebrate the differences that other people have, and to learn from their experiences, which of course is something I love about your podcast. Um, and re- the reason why I read so many books and articles, is because other people's stories inform us, and they give us paradigm shifts, and they cause us to recognize that, you know, we, we need to see something different. And I think one of the most important things we can do is, is to just to stop seeing anything through our political lens and to just listen, just listen. Because if we if we don't, if we're not always worried about the agenda that somebody has and trying to convert us to their religion or pull us over to their side of a political debate or or, you know convince us of why vaccines are good or bad or whatever. I mean if we just separate if we just separate ourselves from all of that and we just see them as people who are just as learning and, and going through life the same way we are, I think we can start to uh, learn, a, to, to 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 become better individuals ourselves. Love
0: that. Love that. Talk, Talk more, about the, more about the Desert News article.
1: Um, I, I uh, wrote that article. Uh, it's <laughs> speaking of like getting heat. Um, and we talked a little bit about before, but it was an article that I didn't think would be incre- as in- incredibly popular um, among a lot of my friends or family members who sort of see the LGBTQ debate as being, um, oh, I don't know what the w- right word is, but one-sided. Um, they don't really, they 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 haven't really had uh, uh, the experiences of, of somebody or known somebody who... Um, maybe was experiencing that themselves, and so it's just it's just black and white for them. And I don't, I I, I think there's a lot of gray sometimes that we are afraid to explore. We don't know how to explore. Um, we are afraid of putting our foot in our mouth or being politically incorrect, especially these days. And and I don't mind so much venturing into those waters if I feel like people will have you know, it might give somebody a different perspective. And so when I wrote that, well, part of what made me actually want to write that was I had a close friend of mine say something along the lines of, I know Disney is, Disney is going to write Elsa as a gay character. And if they do that by George, I'm done. Um, We, you know, I'm, I, I will stop supporting that brand. And What struck me when I heard that was once upon a time, I had had a similar sense, and I would even go so far as to call it a a similar concern. And when she said that, I thought, I don't have that concern anymore. That isn't something that would bother me. And I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have a strong testimony. I love my faith. I know it's true, um, for me and, and that it's, it's something that's good for me, but at the same time, I, I, I don't, I reject this notion that by being a member of the church, it somehow means I have the right to, um, sort of dictate to the whole world what everybody should believe, or, or, and I guess that's not a fair way of characterizing it, because that's making it sound like other members of my faith do that automatically, and I don't believe that's the case for everybody, or, or, or even many, I don't know, I don't want to speak, like I said, too broadly, but, but I do see a tendency, and, and it's not just my faith, but sometimes with Christians in general, where we say, make movies for me, write stories for my kids and we don't think about the stories of others who don't have representation and who don't um who don't feel like they have a voice that needs to be heard and i just i I wrote that article just because i i I think that's wrong um i i i think that that's i don't i don't think that's right i i think that for a, a child um, that's either themselves gay or a child who has parents that are gay who loves Disney films just as much as my daughters do. There's no reason why they can't look to a princess of their own with representation that matters to them. And 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 and, and maybe that maybe somebody wouldn't want to watch that movie for that reason. Okay, that's their that's their choice. I respect their agency, but don't go around and ban a whole brand and and boycott a company just because they're trying to serve multiple, you know, people of all different backgrounds. And, and it really, like I said, fits into the George Floyd thing, because it's the same thing with like affirmative action. And once upon a time, I had resistance in my heart against that, you know, why, wh- where, why, why is that fair? And now I just see the the value and necessity of representation for people. And so that's the, and again, every article that I write, you really only Richard have one little angle that you can approach it from in order to, to, um, not become lost in the weeds. And that was the article, that was the angle that I chose to approach that from. Um, and kudos to Desert News for feeling like the message was important. And they have an editor there that who just champions that kind of uh, writing so much. And I mean, I think that I think the, the publication as a whole feels that, you know, we need to be more inclusive and better in that way. And so I was grateful that they let me use my voice in that platform. I often call myself. Um, a microphone borrower Um, I don't have this great big following on social media anywhere like you do I just like to use other people's microphones and the desert news is a microphone I'm proud of and I was happy to to be able to to use for just a quick little blurb with an article
0: I think that's a great way to use your privilege Um, I tweeted this article out um, and just thought it was a great article there's a this line in here i'd love you to just share your thoughts on this line to me advocating so vehemently against inclusion or representation of lgbtq individual in films and tv comes awfully close to advocating for their stigma stigmatization
1: i i feel that i feel like when when we are telling a group of people you can't be represented you can't have a voice. Not only are we shunning them and, and, and making them, I mean, um, <laughs> all of us, and, and, and this is something I feel all the time. I, I think we overcomplicate this this so much. At the end of the day, all we want to do, all we should want to do, I'm sorry, is, and I, and for the record, I'm not saying I'm great at it in any space, but it's something I'm striving to be better at and sincere about, All we should want to do is treat other people with the same degree of respect we want to be treated with. It doesn't matter anything else. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter their sexual orientation. It doesn't matter their political belief. Every single human being that our Heavenly Father created deserves that respect. And so, um, I, 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 I I don't understand how that, you know, how, how we're somehow privileged, how we somehow use our privilege to say, no, you don't, or no, you don't, you don't, you don't deserve that. And so um, I, I, I'm big on um, trying to make sure that each individual um, has, has that, I, I guess is the best way to put it. And so when you're not represented, and when you're not seen, um, it's similar to me as, as being cast aside. And um, when that happens to people, I think, um, terrible things happen to them internally. And I think as a society, we're, we're poor as a result. And so it's just not something I feel defensive about.
0: You're a father of young kids that would watch Disney films. I guess my kids being in their twenties would watch Disney films too, but how would you feel as an active LDS father watching a film with a gay character in it with your kids?
1: I see. And, and isn't it, um, I don't know if the word is sad, but yeah, probably that I haven't. Um, that that doesn't that that there isn't. Uh, I mean, are the movies that my kids watch are movies we're gravitating towards anyway. and and I think that um to sit down and watch them see somebody else's experience is would be important, would be would be validating, um, humanizing. I don't, I don't, I would never want to have my kids see something that, um, or, or or I guess a better way of saying it is not see something um, that would dehumanize somebody else. And by never, no, by never becoming, by my children never being aware of, of people, you know, of different backgrounds, of, of different races, of different sexual orientations, of them not being aware of those things, they live in, a, they're, they're forced to live in a bubble um, and I live in a bubble. In fact, kind of jumping around here a little bit. When I wrote that article for NBC News about George Floyd, I didn't come out and say I I think that I might have racist tendencies, but just about in only that I have I I recognize that there are um, uh, stereotypes and um, messages that I have received throughout my life that are unconscious inside me. And though I've never said or done anything that, you know, w- w- was, I felt was racist or that I, um, you know, I've never believed a person of color would be inferior to me. Those types of things might be inside of me in ways that I don't understand. And, and honestly, it's not just a, it's not, just wouldn't just be an indication of my bubble. It would be uh, indicative of my, um, I'm sorry, of my privilege. It would be indicative of my bubble. The fact that Richard, I grew up and I believe, and I might, um, I, I might be wrong, but I believe in high school, I believe there was, there were three black kids in my whole class, which I know there are some listeners that would probably just laugh when they heard that. What? But that's how it was. And, and so I wasn't, I wasn't able to have that. Um, I wasn't, I, I didn't, and, and, and and I actually went to a dance with one of those people, and and she was outstanding. But I, I didn't have um an ex- I didn't I didn't have a close enough relationship with any of them to really have them be honest with me, or or maybe I wasn't maybe I wasn't you know uh, letting them do so. But about their experience. And so when we don't ever hear somebody else's experience, uh, you know, what does it feel like to be A, B, or C? Um, we don't know. We have there is no room at all to develop empathy. There's no chance. There's no opportunity for us to sort of um, see something from another person's point of view. And once we do that, all of a sudden, it's like everything changes, right? Um, all of a sudden, we um, we have a paradigm shift because we say, oh, it's not as black and white as I thought. Apparently, white privileged um, guys are the only people living in this world. Uh, apparently, I'm part of a human family and I'm just one thread and this whole interwoven group of people that make this incredible fabric. And maybe all of them deserve to have just as prominent of a thread as I do and and be represented as beautifully as as I want to be represented.
0: I love that. And I love just the idea that having... You know, gay characters represented on TV is actually healthy f- f- in an age-appropriate way for young families and for all of us. I, you and me, yeah. probably think of the closeted LGBTQ kid in our church or another face that are just wondering where their place is in the world and. I sort of think listeners that heavenly father normalized LGBTQ people when he had, when he, when he created LGBTQ people on the earth, I don't believe listeners that he's surprised their LGBTQ people. I don't think he made a mistake. I think it's just part of the needed, beautiful diversity in the world. But if you're growing up LGBTQ, um, there's, it's a heteronormative culture and it's, it's hard sometimes to feel like somebody like you belongs and is needed. And I think it, for a parent to have, you know, or for a network like Disney to have LGBT characters, I don't think that there might be fear that I'm going to have an LGBTQ kid because they see somebody on TV. But I think that's just fear, listeners. I would say that my experiences, you know, talking about LGBTQ in high school or having LGBTQ friends or having LGBTQ characters on TV doesn't confuse one into being LGBTQ. My experience is no one really would want to choose this path. It's one of the most brutal paths in society and they would do anything to be straight and they work so hard to be straight. But So I like where you're just saying that, you know, having gay characters in movies in an appropriate way, in an appropriate age way is healthy and may even allow those kids to come out earlier to parents. Because I think one of the beauties for a kid is if they can come out to their parents. So their parents kind of walk this road with them. And often just the culture you create in your family um, creates a feeling. So if a kid is hearing their parents saying, I'm never going to watch Disney again because they have a gay character, that sends a message potentially to kids. A clear that, one, right? I better not be gay. And I better not be different. Um, and maybe a parent feels that's the right thing to do. And I don't want to make a parent feel bad if they write off a brand because of something. And I think your article creates some space there. But I just cause us to reflect. We often take on villains and um, and maybe some of the villains we take on really aren't the villains. Um, just some thoughts there that I, I was glad Desert News picked up your article. And I'm glad... That we're having these thoughtful discussions within our faith community. Did you get what kind of reaction did you get from the article?
1: Um, I'd say predominantly negative. I would say that um, predominantly I, I, negative. Yeah, yeah. Which which sadly didn't surprise me too much. Um, in fact, I'd say that um, usually one of the things when I have ventured into an opinion space. Um, i I generally try to publish it in a kind of place that if I have a, if I have a conservative point of view, I'd like to publish it in a liberal paper. If I have a liberal paper, I'd like to conserv- publish it in a conservative one. lots of times editors That's don't like it cool. that way and they won't. But my favorite editors are the ones who do and they love that um, because those are the people that you want to reach. And again, I don't Fully understand. I I I have some ideas, and I can relate to my own. I can think back on my own experiences when I have thought differently, but I don't quite understand really the full reason why culturally it is the way it is sometimes. And I don't understand why somehow sometimes being you know having a strong faith and a belief in Christ means that you have to push people away. When I feel like the Gospel of Jesus Christ is really about the complete opposite. And so, and especially when when they're so inconsistent um you know people I, uh, the hypocrisy or maybe the maybe the the softer word is the inconsistency of people who accept all kinds of things and that's how my article started actually in disney there's
0: a couple of examples of the inconsistency
1: oh i mean and 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 i was careful when i wrote this um uh, because i i don't want it to come off like any of these things I, I was uh, equating to being gay, because that's not how I see it all. I saw it as the inconsistency on the other side of the coin where the viewer, um, but viewers became completely comfortable with this idea of Belle marrying an animal, and they became comfortable with an idea of all of these kids in Pinocchio uh, drinking alcohol, or not necessarily comfortable, but tolerating, I guess is a fairer way of, of, of saying it. And um you know they uh, there's and there's all kinds of of um stereotypes in in some of the earlier Disney films and they became uncomfortable with baby dumbo getting drunk and it was a hilarious scene you know in the in the original release of dumbo I and mean, he's a child, he's a he's a baby elephant and he's drunk and having these hallucinations and and all of this stuff and it's just a good time or or ariel getting married when she was 16 oh my goodness richard i saw an article about the ages of all of the disney princesses and i i they are all like, I mean, Snow White is 14 years old. And like Ariel's 16 and she even says, Daddy, I'm 16 in the in the movie. And we're just like, woo, she can go get married and she can, you know, leave her, if, I mean, you know, change her voice and all this stuff for a guy that she never even met. You know, like, and we're just like, yay kids, look at Ariel, she's amazing. And don't you want to be like Ariel too? And it's just like, I'm not, I don't have a problem necessarily with any of those stories um in that you know i understand that they're just stories that some writer thought was entertaining for ch- children or whatever but but the but the irony is that we celebrated them and we we were excited about them and then all of a sudden a character that might be gay is oh no 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 that's uh uh-uh. uh all of the walls have got to come up it kind of made me think i heard you talking to um first lady abby cox about um uh, an example where people said i wouldn't attend a or or didn't know if they would attend a gay friends wedding but they know that they would attend a catholic friends wedding uh, you know we we why can't you apply the same rule um uh, the same logic that you use for one thing to something else um even if you know a, a, again not saying that the behavior on either end of those is the same cuz it's not but the same logic you use to be accepting and 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 tolerant and loving um why you know or just or even celebratory. Why can't you celebrate a a, a a gay Elsa the same way you can celebrate a 16 year old Ariel getting married? You know why 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 is one okay for you and the other uh, not? Any marginalized group of people, they're marginalized because we're we've made it so for so long. and the only way that they break out of that marginalization is if we make it so and and change it dramatically. And so I'd like to see that happen. Like you said, I celebrate those differences. They don't, they don't need, there's, there's nothing for me to be afraid of there.
0: I love that word afraid, Daryl, and fear. And I just, I've had so much fear in my life um, about the other political party or LGBTQ people or other countries. And sometimes we're at war with countries and they're trying to bomb us, and those fears are logical. But sometimes those fears, um, once you get to, like you're doing, You know, hear stories of people in those groups. Um, Perfect love casts without fear. I have, I don't have fear of quote unquote Disney's LGBTQ agenda. I don't. I think their agenda is just to bring entertaining films to us, and some will be some of those films, and some of those content will be comfortable to us, and some won't be. But I don't think um, having a gay character in a Disney film is. Something that's going to negatively affect society. In fact, I think it helps society and reduces divisiveness and causes to look inward and think, what can I do to honor Christ's commandment to love and support and better understand a group of people? Perhaps I didn't. I know in my own life, as my listeners know, it wasn't until I talked to gay people that my heart changed. I it wasn't yes. talking to straight people about gay people that changed my heart. And that's why I love your your George Floyd. Um, article. Maybe we can close with that one. Uh, you know, I just recognize that um, I have a lot of white privilege. I did a podcast with a black Latter day Saint. He's a high school basketball coach, and he gave me an example of white privilege that I'll never forget. And he talked about naming his black son, Austin, and he told me all the names that he knew he couldn't use because that name would be on a resume someday and could change that. Uh-huh that son's future because of that name. And so we chose a very generic name, um, but we've named six kids. and As my wife and I were going through the list of names, we, were, we never thought of that. And I recognize that's white privilege, that all the names we chose for our kids and all the names we considered, I never thought about it in the context of what that name would look like on a potential, on a resume down the road and how it might limit my son or daughters. And it was just... Um, I've also, um, done, in these podcasts of Black just Literary just Saints, Black Saints, as I've shared before, I felt really uncomfortable at times, Daryl, and I've recognized that that's me seeing my own racism within me. That uncomfortableness wasn't, was the spirit actually helping me look inward, and that's painful. And sometimes we don't think that's the spirit, we because we're not used to being uncomfortable, but sometimes that's the personal growth that comes into us as we look inward and see the attitudes we need to change to help lift the burdens of others. Um, So talk about whatever you want to go on your George Floyd article or what your feelings are about this topic.
1: Yeah, i had done some research about what you said about specific specific stories that people of color have had instances, and each one of them were like these subconscious boxes I was checking in my brain thinking, I've never experienced that. In fact, I'll even This was from a few months ago, so I'll even read this little paragraph. It says, I've never experienced, and each one of these things, if you look at the article, um, has a hyperlink, so you can go read their story. But I've never experienced the snide remarks. I've never been turned away by a dentist or received lesser treatment at a hospital on the account of the color of my skin. I've never lived in a neighborhood that was specifically designed to keep me down. I've never had the father of a girl I love call me a racial slur and tell his daughter she could never see me again. I've never seen red and blue lights flashing in my rearview mirror and thought of anything other than how I was going to try to get out of a speeding ticket. I've never had my scholarship called into question by a teacher. Um, Specifically, that one was a a teacher who had told a student that it was basically his, his scholarship was given to him because of affirmative action and he did it in front of his peers. And you could read about that example there. But anyway, I've never thought as, as this man has that I have to be twice as good to get half as much respect. Again, when we talk about white privilege, there's so many political chains that are connected with those words where um, Republicans and conservatives get so defensive. I'm not white, you know, I have no white privilege. But if you just sit back and you you listen, you look at specific examples, like the one you just said, or like you, you know, you at a speeding ticket. Like if you are white and you have been pulled over by a police officer and you see those red and white lights and all you've been doing is speeding, you probably only think, goodness, how am I going to get out of this ticket? Right. But I know for certain from reading, I would go so far as to say countless stories of black men who have said otherwise. That is not the experience of of, of, of a black man. And so that is privilege. And frankly, there's so, I mean, we could, we could, you know, if we really dove into it, and this is what's so fun about an article versus a podcast where I can just spend hours and hours just diving into it and then putting it, you know, together. But like, I, there are so many examples. And I think recognizing that is really important. And frankly, and this kind of goes back to the the Disney article about the, the their lack of rep- representation is equal or or nigh unto equal to their stigmatization. Frankly, when we refuse to recognize our privilege, we're, it's a little bit of a slap in the face to somebody who has, who has had a completely different experience in life. And, and, you know, the fact that my skin, this, I guess, is, is what it comes down to for me. My skin color has never once Felt limiting to me in life. It's never once felt like it made me less likely to get a job. It's never once made me feel like it was, I was less likely to get in trouble. I was less likely to be um, profiled or thought of negatively against simply by somebody taking a glance at me. And I know that isn't the case for others. And so again, it behooves me to, to, to close my mouth and to look at those other people's stories and to try to share their stories um, and to try to draw attention to their experiences, because I don't know what that feels like. And I think it takes a lot of courage to say that for everybody. I mean, for anybody that does, I'm not patting myself on the back, but for anybody to say, you know, it must be nice for you to be straight and not to understand what it's like to be gay. It must be nice for you to you know feel like you're in the you're you were born the gender you feel like you are and not to understand what a trans person feels like but it doesn't mean that that's the experience everybody's having and for you to just say that that's all it is um like I said is a little bit of a or all there should be um is a slap in the face to people who have a completely different experience and the last thing I'll say along those lines that I thought of that I wanted to say is that we can all use our own experiences in other ways to you know share that empathy it's it's it is um, it's not it's, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be um, it, it we have we have all felt like we've all been part of that text message thread and seen somebody responding to everybody on that thread except for us we've all been standing there in the gym and and seen the 5 or 6 or in my case 26 kids picked before us in gym class we all know what it feels like to be the odd man out. And if we and 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 if and and you know, even if we don't in one in one place, we do in another place. You know, you put you put somebody who's used to just strutting their basketball skills on a on a stage at a play, all of a sudden they're the fish out of water. It, whatever the experiences that we've had in our life where we have felt like a fish out of water, or we've just felt like you know, we we were the minority in the situation, use that experience. To just imagine the way somebody else is feeling twenty, four, seven, and 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 right there, full stop. That means that that's what has to change. That's what we're, that's where we have to grow. And like you said, it's uncomfortable. That's where we need to improve.
0: I love that. Um, to me, that's so consistent with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of Elder Rendlin's visual imagery he created in a recent conference talk. We can be stone throwers or stone catchers. And in yeah. your world of journalism, if that's the right term, umbrella term to describe what you do, there's a lot of stone throwers and flame throwers. And that can create a lot of following and a lot of connection and a lot of traction in a career. Um, and we've certainly seen that politically or with writers or people in other areas. But you're a stone catcher and you're catching well, it in the sense. Maybe I've, been, I've been
1: both, Richard. I've okay. been both. I you really have. Wanna... But, I'm stri- but I'm striving to be a better. Catcher,
0: I am, and so am I. I've have been a stone thrower at times, and I've been striving to be a better stone catcher. But that story from the Washington Post—that's a stone catcher story. The story about Disney, a story about George Floyd; those are stone catcher stories where you're bringing to life the stories of others in a different perspective, in a thoughtful, helpful way. Um, So I admire that part of you. And you may, yeah, you probably like me have been a thrown thrower at times, and I think that's okay. We're all um, doing the best we can. I love this quote from Brene Brown listeners that really helped me to, um, it just crystallized Black Lives Matter for me. I believe Black Lives Matter is a mo- movement to rehumanize Black citizens. All lives matters, but all not all lives need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. And so that for me, listeners, was a light bulb quote for me to sort of separate all lives matter from black lives matter. I believe in both of those statements. And, but I recognize this moral inclusion in what historically has been done and what currently is being done to a group of our heavenly parents, children, and our responsibility, if we have privilege, um, whatever privilege we hold to use that privilege to, to amplify the voices of others or be a stone catcher and, I think you're doing that in a really good way, and I think we can do that within our faith. Um, I think as Latter-day Saints with understanding the plan of salvation, the sort of 40,000-foot view of why we're here in the context of the plan of salvation, we should be the very best at being stone catchers because I think we have a doctrinal foundation to actually see everybody as our spirit brother and sister and have the perspective so... As a Latter-day Saint, if I really own my doctrine, it wants me to do a better job of being a stone um, catcher and and follow the things some of your articles are suggesting. Listeners, we didn't get to another article, but I'll link to it. And maybe if you, I'll just turn it over to you. You can talk about this article or anything you want to share in closing. But it's an article called, What You're Saying When You Give Someone the Silent Treatment. And as I told Daryl before we went live, this is in the Atlantic, this is an article that caused me to look inward and recognize I am doing this right now with people in my life, and it's not—it's a form of manipulation that is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I like reading stuff that causes me to sometimes recognize where I need to improve. And this article in particular is very helpful for me as a as a type of manipulation. Not to the extent of some of the examples you give in the article of forty years of silent treatment, and but I recognize I do this in a a more limited way. But I have done this at times, and I'm currently doing this. And so I'll just turn it back to you. I don't know if you want to talk any about that article, or just anything else you want to say in conclusion, Daryl. Yeah,
1: uh, thank you. I I won't go into much of that article. That is one of the articles I most. I'm proud of just because that was a process. It was an article I learned a lot through as well. Um, but I feel like um, the the principles of that article of ostracism and and um, you know deliberately making somebody else feel invisible really feed into this other these other conversations significantly. Again, if it's principled base, if it's like what. Um, an early church leader in our faith, Joseph Smith, said, "If we if we know correct principles, we can govern ourselves. And if if we understand the principle of feeling ostracized, feeling um, uh, invisible to somebody else in any capacity, because that article wasn't didn't even mention LGBTQ rights. It didn't even mention people of color. It's it was something that's kind of done um, to all uh, almost. In fact, if you want to talk about an article that had an almost Um, uh, uh, completely positive response. Although, of course, there were some voices that dissented, but the majority of people, I cannot, I, I have never written an article that I got more feedback from than that one. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in either the comments or to me personally, said, "I this has happened to me. I know what this feels like." I there were some people that were brave enough to say, "I've done this," Um, and again, I, I think you, like you said, we've all. I think we can all say that we've done it to some level, whether it's just trying to, you know, just end a conversation, show somebody that we're mad at them. I mean, whether it's a really, a really short time or a longer time, I think we've all done some version of the silent treatment, but, but the majority of people that reached out said, this has been done to me. And again, if, if that's been done to you and you know what a terrible feeling it is, use that experience to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think that there is something helpful to in recognizing that, you know, we've we've maybe done that before or, you know, like I'll admit, I've been a stone thrower before and and or or any of our faults or like, hey, once upon a time, I, I felt this about LGBTQ people or I felt this about people of color in a way that I didn't realize um, I was maybe was maybe so negative or or or, or putting them down but I recognize that and admitting that because I think when we admit those kinds of things um, we make people other people feel comfortable not in in that behavior but in recognizing they can change Um, which of course is to me one of the most important things about the gospel of Jesus Christ in fact I'll just finish with a quote here from Elder Uchtdorf I know you're a big fan of his too a leader in our faith Um, but he says if we repent mistakes do not disqualify us They are part of our progress. And that's how I feel that all of my past mistakes and frankly, many future ones, I'm sure in other capacities and positive, I'm going to keep making them can all become part of my evolution part of my growth. If I'll, if I'll repent, if I'll stop, if I'll listen. um, And if I'm, if I'm just willing to evolve and grow Um, with, 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 without a political agenda, without, you know, thinking without putting any of that in the forefront of my mind, with just simply thinking about the example that Christ set, and the love that he has for all of my brothers and sisters, just as he loves me, um, I can do a lot of um, good with that, with with being committed to that level of growth.
0: Thank you, Daryl Austin. How do, um, I know you're on Twitter, tell people your Twitter if they want to find you.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm my only place that I'm publicly, I've got an Instagram account, but I keep it really small, but Twitter people are welcome to find me um, and probably dislike some of the things I've said, but that's, that's okay. okay. <laughs> that's how, I mean, I, I am used, I will say you, I don't think you can get involved with writing without um, developing a little bit of a thick skin. Yeah. Um, at least you have no business doing so, um, but they can find me at Daryl Austin, UT for Utah. Um, that's my Twitter. And I'd love to connect with you there.
0: And Daryl is uh, Twitter verified. I think that's the right vocabulary, which makes sense given um, that he's a writer and has a national platform. Um, listeners will link to all the articles we've talked about. I think there's been three or four, just if you want to scroll down, um, that we've talked about, but um, we'll sign off. But Daryl, Austin, thank you. Um When I talk to people like you and many others, it just gives me hope for the future. You're, you know, 22 years younger than me. You have a young family. And I think about your kids growing up with parents like you, with a worldview with you, with with the things you're teaching them. And it just gives gives me hope for the future. So listeners, I I know these last days are one day closer to the second coming of Christ, but also have a great deal of hope for the future. And for a rising generation that is doing to do better on inclusivity and loving and especially people that are different than us. So this is Richard and Daryl signing up on another episode of Listen, Learn and Love. <music>